0: Please bow your heads in prayer with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day that you've given us to worship you. Uh, We thank you, Father, for sending your Son who has the name that is above every name. And as the Word of God says, one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, We know that uh, one day, Lord, not just the angels, but every person will bow as well. And so I pray that as we dive into your word right now, we would bow our minds and our hearts to your will and to your word. I pray that you would speak to us today, O God, because we need uh, to align with your perfect will for our lives. Lord, speak to us, we pray. I pray that my words would not get in the way of your words. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Make sure you have your Bibles handy today. We're going to be diving into God's word together In just a moment. In 1994, Korea Air had a certain one of their airliners that had a rough landing. It came in for a landing and it overshot the runway. And so in August of 94, this plane came down, it overshot the runway, it crashed into a barrier that was past the runway, and it burst into flames. There were 160 passengers and crew on that plane and Thank God, all 160 were able to get off that plane in time, and they didn't have a single casualty. But in the days after that accident, when this plane was completely destroyed by the flames of that crash, the investigation revealed the reason that plane had crashed in the first place. And the reason was, the pilot and the co-pilot had gotten in a fist fight just before landing. They were fighting over who was supposed to take controls of the landing mechanisms. And so they had this fest fight right there in the cockpit, and the plane ends up crashing. Both men ended up being placed in jail. You think about that, and as I was thinking about it this last week, I realized, you know what? 160 people could have died. A multi-million dollar plane went up in flames because these two men could not agree on who was in charge. Well, two weeks ago, we returned to our Faith That Works study through the gospel, uh, I should say, through the epistle of James, through the letter that James wrote uh, to Christians in the first century. And in the first 12 verses of chapter 4, we discovered over the last couple weeks that God's word gives us a a beautiful and wonderful uh, counsel on how to be at peace with others in our relationships. I think those two pilots uh, could have stood to to use some of that counsel from James chapter 4 on that certain day in August of 94. Well, we saw last week that the source of our battles isn't on the outside. The source of our battles is actually on the inside. Our selfish, sinful, old nature battles it out every day with our new godly nature. If you are a Christian, if you are a born-again believer and follower of Jesus Christ, you have these two natures inside of you living simultaneously, side by side, day in and day out. And that old, sinful, selfish nature battles it out with the new godly nature every single day. And you and I have to choose which one of those natures is going to win the battle. Well, this morning as we pick up in verse 13 of James chapter 4... God's Word will challenge us to ask ourselves a very important, life altering question. And that question is simply this Who is in charge? Who's in charge? Well, I want you to open your Bibles to James chapter 4. It's most of the way through your Bible. James is one of the latter books in the New Testament. And so we'll be in James chapter 4, picking up in verse 13, right where we left off last Sunday. And so we're in James chapter 4, once again, starting in verse 13. This is how God's Word reads. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, we'll spend a year there, carry on business and make money, Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, all such boasting is evil. Anyone, then, who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. God bless us as we... Read and study his word together over these next few minutes. If you read through the book of James, start to finish, you'll notice that there are several times when James stops to address poor Christians in the churches he's writing to. And at other times, he'll stop and speak directly to rich Christians who were in the churches That he was writing to. We know that many churches in James Day were uh, mostly Jewish, but the churches definitely weren't like cookie-cutter churches, and they definitely didn't have cookie-cutter Christians sitting in the pews in those churches. The churches contained blue-collar families and and white-collar families. The churches contained wealthy landowners and working-class servants, so there were rich Christians and there were poor Christians. So thinking about this passage we just read together, which group do you suppose James was writing to here at the end of James chapter 4? You guessed it, he's writing to rich Christians there in the church, and specifically in this passage he's writing to rich merchants, uh, those merchants who were part of the Christian churches who would go off. Across the Roman Empire for months at a time and buy and sell goods. He's speaking to these Christian mer- merchants in particular here in James chapter 4. So you look at verse 13 there, and we see that there were some issues with these merchants that he's writing to in chapter 4. Uh, James points out here in verse 13 that these merchants, uh, they had their 12-month plan all figured out. Uh, tomorrow I'm going to that city, and then uh, next week I'm going to go over to uh, this city, and I'm going to do this much business, and next month I'm going to secure this many customers, and by the end of this year, I will have made this much money. They had all their plans figured out for the next year or two. Now, for those of us who are thoughtful planners, this sounds like a very good thing, doesn't it? I like to plan ahead of time, so in many ways, I read this and sounds pretty good. I'm going to make plans so that I'm not doing everything all willy-nilly like. Because those of us who are planners know, if you aim for nothing, you'll hit it every time. Right? We've got to have goals. We've got to have plans. We've got to have things on our calendar. And so what's wrong with what these Christians were doing? Well, James, in essence, points out two problems with what these rich Christian merchants were doing. Uh, The first problem was that the Christian merchants were boasting and bragging about their grand plans. And as James says here in verse 16, all such boasting is evil. It's evil, plain and simple. Well, why is it evil? Well, what's the big deal with boasting and bragging about yourself once in a while? They probably weren't doing it every day, just once in a while. What's the problem with that? Well, Warren Weersby answers this question really well. Here's what he says. Man cannot control future events. He has neither the wisdom to see the future, nor the power to control the future. For him to boast is sin. It is making himself God. That's really a good way to look at it, don't you think? It's an eye-opening perspective. When we boast and brag about what we're going to do tomorrow or next week or next year, we're foolishly acting as if we can actually see the future or control the future. But we can't. I can't see the future. Can you? No, none of us can. Can you control the future? Ultimately, not really. I can't control when the next hurricane's coming. I can't control when the next pandemic's coming. There are all sorts of things in this life we have absolutely no control over. And so James is basically saying, if you take upon yourself the position of a braggart, one who's boasting and bragging about what I'm going to do tomorrow, what I'm going to do next week, what I'm going to do next month or next year, he says you're basically putting yourself in the position of God. But the reality is you have neither the wisdom nor the power to know or control the future. Well, there's a second problem, and I would say this is an even bigger problem that James has with these rich Christian merchants' plans. The second problem was that their plans were missing one key ingredient, God. They had completely left God out of their plans. These believers and followers of Jesus Christ made these plans, and God was nowhere to be found. They weren't praying for God's guidance as they set their schedules. They weren't studying God's word to make sure that their priorities lined up with God's priorities. They weren't even considering the possibility that God's plans might be a whole lot different than their own plans. And there was the issue of motive. Their plans didn't stem from a desire to bring God pleasure or to make Him look good. Instead, their plans were motivated by a desire to bring themselves pleasure and make themselves look good Pastor John MacArthur says it really, really well here's what he writes James does not condemn wise business planning but rather planning that leaves out God the people so depicted here in James 4 are practical atheists living their lives and making their plans as if God did not exist That's an interesting term that John MacArthur uses here. Practical atheists. Think about that. Practical atheists. I'd like you to chew on those words with me for just a few moments. We know that an atheist is someone who doesn't believe in God. But John MacArthur is saying there are Christians who live their lives as if they didn't believe in God. They may not be atheists, but they live like atheists. John MacArthur makes a really good case here. That these greedy, ego-driven merchants here in James 4, they're living as if they weren't saved. They are saved, but they live as if they're not saved. They call themselves Christians, but their actions betray them. Their plans and their priorities are more like an atheist plans or an atheist priorities. Their motives are more like an atheist's motives. Their lifestyles and their spending habits are more like an atheist lifestyle or an atheist spending habits. And so he has a problem with these rich merchants. They're Christians, but they're not living like Christians. These Christians are both in the world and of the world. They could attend an atheist convention and blend in no problem. They are practical atheists. Let me ask you, are you a practical atheist? Are you a practical atheist? You've believed in Jesus Christ. You've confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior. At some point in your life, you repented from your sin, and you were even baptized. But if someone were to look at your daily life, there would be very little evidence that you're a Christian. Is there evidence of your Christianity in your daily life? Sure, you you lift up some token prayers before meals, and maybe at bedtime, you go to church once in a while. But do you realize many atheists do those exact same things? Out of respect for their mom or their grandma, many atheists will close their eyes and say a prayer before a meal. Out of respect for their wife, many atheist husbands will go ahead and go to church on Christmas and Easter, maybe even sometimes in between. But if you look at their daily lives, so many... So many see that their actions betray their real beliefs Let me ask you, is there evidence of your Christianity in the way you go about making decisions? Is there evidence of your Christianity in the plans you've made for next week or for next year? Is there evidence of your Christianity in the way you spend your money? Is there evidence of your Christianity in the way that you carry out the tasks at work? Is there evidence of your Christianity in the way that you treat your spouse and your kids? Is there evidence of your Christianity in the music that you listen to, in the TV programs you enjoy watching, in the movies you like to pay to watch? Is there any evidence of Christianity in the way that you vote? This is a big election year. Is there going to be evidence of your Christianity as you go to the polls in the month of November? Years ago, someone asked me a question that I'll never forget. Dane... If you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? I remember when I first heard that question, man, that hit that hit hard. Wow. What a powerful question. Dane, if you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And I want to ask you that same question. If you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Would there? If not, then you're likely a practical atheist. Like these merchants here in James 4, you identify as a Christian, but you live as if God didn't exist. Well, these rich merchants had these two major problems. They boasted and bragged about tomorrow, and they left God out of their plans so in verse 14, James puts them in their place by saying, Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. Isn't that the truth? It sure is. We don't know what our health will be like tomorrow. We don't know what family challenges we're going to face tomorrow. Uh, We don't know uh, what natural disasters and financial challenges might come our way uh, tomorrow. Uh, We don't even know for sure if we're going to wake up and be alive tomorrow. Think about it. Just seven and a half months ago was New Year's Day 2020. And we came into this new year, and many of us were saying, I am so glad that 2019 is over. Woohoo! A brand new year with a fresh start. Seven and a half months ago, we had no clue that COVID was coming. Seven and a half months ago on New Year's Day, we had no clue that we were going to be at a, on a stay-at-home order for at least two and a half months. We had no idea on January 1st that schools were going to close. And that churches were going to close. And our favorite restaurants and stores were going to close. And even Disneyland and Dodger Stadium would close. We had no clue on January 1st, did we? And on January 1st, we had no idea, no idea of the social unrest that was going to come on the heels of the murder of a man who none of us had ever heard of, George Floyd. On January 1st, we had no clue. And so James speaks to us. Here in August of 2020 And says just look back a few months You might make your plans for next week Or next month or next year But you have no clue what's coming How foolish it is When we pretend Like we've got all these plans That are definitely going to be carried out Oh we don't know James says what tomorrow is going to bring Only God knows the future. So only God knows which plans we make today will lead to our greatest good and to His greatest glory tomorrow. Did you catch that? Only God knows which plans we carry out today will lead to our greatest good and His greatest glory tomorrow. So it's foolish for Christians to brag about the future or to leave God out of our plans as a wise man once said, if you want to make God laugh Just tell him your plans. Amen? If you want to make him laugh, just show him your plans. Because his plans will always be so much better than our own. God's word teaches us here in James 4 to get rid of all of our boasting. And to place God in the very center of our planning. It's good to make plans, provided we keep in mind that all of our plans here on earth are tentative. All of our plans here on earth are temporary. After all, as James says in verse 14, we are just a mist. We're just a shadow. We're here for a little while, and then, poof, we're gone. We vanish. So instead of saying, I'm going to do this tomorrow, or I'm going to do this next week, or I'm going to do this next year, James tells us what we should say is, if it's the Lord's will, I'm going to do this, or that, or the other. I've tried very hard in recent years To carry out the command in this verse And so if you ask me to do something for you I will do my best to do it But if it involves something tomorrow Or even later today I'll try to say God willing I'll be there And I'll help you with that We have to be careful about making promises That we may not be able to keep Now James ends chapter 4 with this great verse This last verse in chapter 4, look at it again there in your Bibles. In the NIV 84 edition it says it this way. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. Anyone who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. Remember that if Jesus is your Savior, he must also be your Lord. Uh, Jesus didn't die on the cross just to save us from our sins. He died on the cross so that we could be set free to truly obey him and carry out God's plans for our lives, right? He didn't just die to save you. He died to set you free to live for him. So let me ask you, if you saw a drowning man, why would you throw him a life preserver? Well, you'd throw him a life preserver because you want him to live, right? You want to save his life. Well, let's say you did that. You see a drowning man, you throw him a life preserver, you pull him to safety, and as soon as he reaches safety, he pulls out a gun and puts it to his head. If he did that, wouldn't you say that that salvation was a bit of a waste? You had given him a second chance at life by saving him that day from drowning, and he squandered it. He wasted it by immediately ending his own life. That would be a tragedy if that happened, but much the same thing happens when we allow Jesus to come into our life and save us and we squander the rest of our life here on earth by living the same darn way we used to live before he saved us. Jesus didn't save you just so you'd be saved in that moment. He saved you so that you could live And specifically, he saved you so that you could live for him, for your greater good, for the good of those around you, and ultimately for his glory. For his glory. Jesus can't just be your Savior, he must also be your Lord, which means your master, your leader, your boss. You can actually translate that word Lord as slave master. He wants to be your slave master. To call the shots in your life. As I like to say it, he wants to be in the driver's seat of your life. Many of you have heard me say before that this popular bumper sticker in the 1990s that said, Jesus is my co-pilot. Uh, Jesus didn't like that bumper sticker. He has no desire, no interest in being your co-pilot. He wants to be your pilot. He wants to be in the driver's seat. He wants to be behind the wheel of your life because he knows better than you do how you could live your life for your greatest good for the good of those around you and for the glory of God he wants to be your Lord he insists that he be your Lord if he is also your Savior Luke 6 46 Jesus asked the question why do you call me Lord Lord and don't do what I say Jesus says if you're calling me Lord then why aren't you doing what I'm telling you to do John 14:15, Jesus said, "If you love me, you'll obey what I command." Uh, John 15:14 he says, "You are my friends if you do what I command." So with this important teaching about the Lordship of Jesus Christ in mind, look again with me at James 4 verse17. James writes, "Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. Most of the time when we think about, Not sinning uh, We think about the thou shalt nots Uh, I don't want to sin So I better obey uh, the thou shalt nots Particularly the ten commandments Thou shalt not steal Uh, Thou shalt not commit adultery Uh, Thou shalt not uh, bear false witness Or tell lies And thou shalt not murder If I'm going to obey God And obey Jesus Christ I better avoid those things I'm not supposed to do Those thou shalt nots are all lumped together and can be called sins of commission. God doesn't want us to commit sins as we follow Jesus Christ, right? But here in this final verse of James 4, James is talking about a different kind of sin. He's not talking about sins of commission. He's talking about sins of omission. It's not enough simply to avoid the bad, Jesus Christ, as we follow him and have him in the driver's seat of our lives, calls us to carry out the good. Yes, we avoid the bad. Yes, we avoid the sin. But we carry out the good to avoid sins of omission, omitting things that he has called us to do. Uh, Think of it this way. A, A fireman wouldn't be able to keep his job if every time there was a fire, he simply succeeded in not setting any other fires. If at some point the fireman doesn't put out the fires that already are, he's going to be fired, right? You can't keep your job as a fireman if you're not putting out fires. You don't just avoid the bad, you've got to do the good. Uh, think about a plumber. Uh, a plumber wouldn't be able to keep his job if all he did was successfully do house visits and keep from flooding houses with more leaks. He would have to at some point do some plumbing. He's going to have to fix the broken toilets. He's going to have to repair the clogged drains. He's going to have to unclog uh, those, uh, those drains to the septic tanks. He's going to have to do some plumbing if he's going to keep his job. Think about a teacher. A teacher can't stand back and talk to her principal and say, I've been successful as a teacher because I've successfully restrained myself from strangling my kids that are annoying in my class. No, at some point she's got to do some teaching. So keep those in mind as you think about what James is saying here. Sometimes followers of Christ say, I am a successful Christian, I am a successful follower of Jesus Christ if I simply avoid the sins of commission. I obey the Ten Commandments, I obey all those thou shalt nots, so I've been successful, even though they haven't done a darn thing, to carry out the good That Jesus Christ has commanded them to carry out Far too many Christians fall into the same trap That these merchants here in James 4 fell into The trap of thinking that I have complete control over my own life It's my life And I'll do with it what I want to do It's my body And it's my money And it's my car And it's my time to do with however I darn well please And James says no it's not No it's not It never was In 1 Corinthians 6 verses 19 and 20 The Apostle Paul says Don't you know That your body is the temple Of the Holy Spirit who is in you Whom you have received from God You are not your own You were bought at a price Therefore honor God With your body Think about those last two sentences Really meditate on those last two sentences You are not your own You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. It boils down to this. If you have chosen to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've also chosen to accept Him as your Lord. And if He's your Lord, that means that He is your master, He's your boss, He's your leader. And if He is your master, then you are His slave. some of us don't like that term being used. Well, Dane, couldn't you use the word servant instead? Well, servant's a perfectly good translation of that word Lord as well. But so is slave. And sometimes we need the jarring aspect of that word to really sink our teeth into what Jesus is saying when he says that he wants to be your Lord. He wants to be your Lord. If he is your Lord, you are truly his slave. Everything that you have is actually His. Your hands are His. Your mouth is His. Your eyes are His. Your body is His. Your time is His. Your money is His. Your priorities need to be His. The goals that you set for your life need to be His goals. The lifestyle that you live needs to be His kind of lifestyle. Everything about you is his, and so when he asks you to use it for his purposes and for his glory, you don't have the right to tell him no. You don't have the right. And if you do choose to tell him no and refuse to do what he says to do, that James says is a sin. It's a sin of rebellion. Just as stealing or adultery or murder is a sin of rebellion. Sins of omission are just as rebellious as sins of commission well what specifically is the good that God has called you to do well it's right here in the pages of God's word and we talk about the main ones very often we talk about often here at impact that God has called you to love him with all your heart and love others even more than you love yourself We talk about often here at Impact, God has called you to love and serve God by loving and serving others around you. God has called you to, in humility, consider others more important than yourselves, to put others' needs above your own needs. He has called us to be kind and compassionate to others, to forgive those who wrong us, to pray for those who persecute us. He calls us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which means that every day of our lives, uh, whether we are uh, here or somewhere else at work or in our neighborhood or even at Walmart, wherever we are and and whatever we're doing, we offer ourselves as living to in God's hands to use as he sees fit here I am God I might not be very smart and I might not be very strong and I'm certainly not very good looking but here I am God use me however you want to use me today to be a blessing in the lives of those around me and use me for the glory of God here I am God here I am use me use me Warren Weersby. Shares these really good insights in his commentary on James. Listen to what he says. The will of God is not difficult to discover. If we are willing to obey, he is willing to reveal. God does not reveal his will to the curious or to the careless, but to those who are ready and willing to obey him. The more we obey, the easier it is to discover what God wants us to do. Think about those words. If we are willing to obey, He is willing to reveal. The more we obey, the easier it is to discover what God wants us to do. Have you ever found yourself asking, what's God's will for my life? Well, God's will for, you, for your life is for you to start obeying what you already know He told you to do. And as you start obeying what you know He already told you to do In that obedience He will reveal even more of His will For your life Amen? Amen God has a very special relationship With my mom This has been a a rough few weeks For my family My dad has been declining With his health And he probably won't be with us here on this earth Much longer And so I've thought back to my mom and dad and different memories of conversations I've had with both of them over my lifetime. And as I was preparing this message, I thought about something my mom has told me many times. See, my mom is retired as an elementary school teacher. She taught in Christian schools for some 30 years, and most of that time she taught second grade. And in that last school where she was teaching for more than 20 of those years... They soon discovered after she'd been there a few years that she had a special ability to handle, uh, how shall we say, uh, difficult children. (laughs) Some Christians will send their kids to a Christian school. I should say most Christians will send them to a, a Christian school, those who do, because they want them to receive a Christian education. But there are some kids who end up in a Christian school because either they were kicked out of a public school or because their parents... Realize that it was pretty close and they weren't succeeding at their last school. And so oftentimes the administrators would learn that my mom was particularly good at dealing with these difficult students. And so she of the several second grade teachers normally would have a greater proportion of the problem students. And so there were days when my mom would be teaching where she'd have to spin around in her, in her desk chair and face the wall and cry out to God in prayer, God help me. I don't know what to do with this child. God help me. This class, they're bouncing off the walls and I don't know what to do. And my mom, I can't tell you how many times she's told me that God would consistently tell her three things. When she cried out to God for her classroom, he would say, number one, God is love. Number two, love never fails. And then number three, God would ask her this question, Who rules here? And my mom consistently would answer back, You do! You rule here! And she would turn around and face that class, and God would give her the strength to do whatever needed to be done to finish that day and to love those kids and to teach those kids for the glory of God. One of the most important questions you'll ever answer in life Getting a little choked up thinking about my parents right now. Forgive me. One of the most important questions you'll ever be asked in life, whether you're a teacher in the classroom, or whether you're a businessman on a sales call, or whether you're at home with your wife and your kids, or you're standing in that line at Walmart, one of the most important questions you'll ever be asked and have to answer is this one Who's in charge? Who's in charge of your life? And I hope you can quickly answer, like my mom answered time and time again, God, you are. You're in charge. So here I am. Use me, O oh God. I hope and I pray that if you and I are ever placed on trial, accused of being Christians, that there will be plenty of evidence to convince the jury that you and I are not just believers in Jesus Christ, but we're sold-out followers of Jesus Christ. He is our Master, not just our Savior. And we follow Him regardless of the cost because we live for Him and we live for His glory. Heavenly Father, we come to You in Jesus' name. And we want to say, Lord Jesus, we are sorry. Not just for our sins of commission. Lord, we come to you more often with those confessions. Oh God, forgive me because I did that stupid thing. Lord, forgive me because I spoke those words that were unkind and hurtful. We come to you, Lord, often asking for your forgiveness for those sins of commission. But Lord, oftentimes we forget to come to you asking for your forgiveness for what we failed to do asking for your forgiveness to forgive us, O oh God, because we didn't do the good that you called us to do. We didn't share the Word of God with others. We weren't bold enough to tell people about Jesus Christ and ask them if they wanted to accept Him. Lord, we, we didn't reach out in compassion and kindness to that person who was hurting, that person who was hungry, that person who needed the love of Christ, And so we do that now, Lord. We ask for your forgiveness for things we've done this last week and this last month, failing to do what we should have done. Help us, O God, not to simply avoid doing things that we shouldn't do, but help us, O God, to do the Christ-like things that you've called us to do. Lord, we believe you saved us for a reason, to reach our potential in Christ to live, Lord, for the good of those around us and the glory of God. I pray that when you need something done that you'll be able to look to any of us and know that we are ready and willing to do what you call us to do. We are yours. We are your servants. We are your slaves. And we are here to do what you call us to do because we live for the glory of God. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. If you're here today and you've never made a decision to ask Jesus Christ not just to be the Savior, but to be the Lord of your life, I want to urge you to make that decision right now. You can just repeat after me right now, right where you are Lord Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I admit that I am a sinner. I believe in you, Lord Jesus. But I don't just believe in you. I'm ready to obey you. I'm ready to follow you as Lord. Please come into my life and wash my sins away and help me to live for you as my Lord and Master from this day forward. In Jesus' name. If you just ask Jesus Christ to come into your life, part of obedience is doing exactly what He said to do here in this Word. And the first thing you need to do is get baptized. And so, for whatever reason, Jesus chose baptism as that definite point in time where you make it clear to God, the angels, and anyone who's watching, I am serious about this decision to follow Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord from this point forward. We're going to be playing a song of invitation right now. You'll see the names of our prayer counselors at the bottom of your screen. I encourage you to text or call one of these prayer counselors right now. Let them know that you made a decision to accept Christ and need to get baptized as soon as possible and we'll love to share with you how you can get baptized maybe even today but certainly this week we'll help make it happen you just let us know or if you're just going through some stuff and you need someone to pray with you you call one of our prayer counselors as well we'd love to pray with you please lift your voices with us together for this song of invitation and please give us a call or text if we can pray with you or talk to you about Christ today